into Opium War II. Uh, after starting with the Taiping Rebellion, 1850 to 1856, uh, we are going into the op- the Second Opium War. So I guess before we start, let's just let me just make this absolutely clear. In the middle of a uh, 10, 15 year civil war, which is the most destructive civil war in human history. Uh, there's an, also the imperialists decide to fight a little opium war against uh, China as well. So just pile, pile it on. Um, well, when opportunity knocks. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say a word about sources as well. We've had some inquiries about sources. Uh, Justin has our research staff working on that. <laughs> yes. He's laughing because the research, the research staff is, uh, uh, Justin. Uh, but I would give the same advice that I, I gave to my students and, and to my nephew and niece. If you're going to read something about these topics, read more than one. If you read a couple, you increase the chances of avoiding a particularly biased source. Yeah. Think and Just oh, watching Fox News, for example. Well, what I was going to say, because this is... Um, <clears throat> This is what I found when I wrote about Rwanda and the DRC is um, finding multiple sources is harder than it looks in some cases in the sense that you'll read 10 books, but they all say the same thing because they all cite the original, um, right. you know, the original 1995 book by what's his name, right? Yeah. Um, and then that sets the tone, that sets the ideological tone. So when 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 you say read multiple things it means really make sure that you're reading at least a couple of really different perspectives and that might mean something uncomfortable for you you know it might mean mm-hmm. yeah and if you're researching online check the links yeah what does this source lead you to mm-hmm. you know and- if you're uh, led almost directly to something that really makes you feel uncomfortable there's probably a good reason for that yeah and then and yeah so don't just go to like wikipedia because wikipedia also is you know it, it's what people put on there right and there there are games there are people who game wikipedia like they game anything else mm-hmm. oh i like going to wiki but that's with topics that i know about because mm-hmm. then you can identify the game and yeah you know find out where where the the lines of the debate are now right <laughs> Anyway, Opium War II. So this all begins with the Arrow incident. So the Arrow, uh, my source for this is uh, J.Y. Wong. Uh, The Arrow was a lorcha. This is a a type of hybrid vessel with a European hull, but with Chinese rigging. So it's not a ship and it's not a junk. It's an in-between. And the, the Arrow worked the Pearl River. So they're trading up and down the river and usually... Uh, coming into harbor at uh, Guangzhou, uh, Canton. And on October 8th, 1856, they came into harbor at Canton. Manchu officials boarded the Lorcha uh, based on a tip that it had identified one or two of the crew as pirates. In fact, one of these guys had been involved in a pirate attack like two days earlier, and now he's peacefully sailing in as a, you know, an honest merchant crew. So the report we get on this comes from British Consul Harry Parks, uh, a guy that we'll see again. So he wrote to the governor of Hong Kong, and here's the official report. Shortly after eight o'clock, a Chinese warboat boarded an English lorcha, the Arrow, lying at anchor, and regardless of the remonstrance of her master, an Englishman, seized, bound, and carried off 12 of her Chinese crew and hauled down the English colors, which were then flying. So <clears throat> what's interesting about this report is how uh, close to the truth it is, which is to say not close at all. Uh, the English master was not aboard. In fact, he was almost never aboard. What you have here is the oldest trick in the world. You basically fly colors to protect yourself. So you can, you know, smuggle and uh, do it under an American flag to protect you from being boarded by 
you know, the Navy of a country that doesn't dare to offend the U.S. This is an old slave trading trick. It's an old smuggling trick. And it seems to have worked for these guys. So first of all, the English master was not on board. Uh, second of all, the ship was not flying English colors, so they couldn't have been hauled down. But Parks knows how to stir the pot and to get the governor of Hong Kong upset. Just the image of our flag being hauled down is going to get you going. So Parks demanded the immediate return of ship and crew and Viceroy Ye Ming Chen, uh, who has a mandate to fight piracy. I mean, the vessel was Chinese-owned, Chinese-registered, the crew was entirely Chinese, and no foreigners were on board. So as far as he's concerned, it is strictly an internal matter. So here's the little fact that this all turns on. The Arrow had been registered in Hong Kong, but that registry had expired. So it was a British-owned vessel at one point. It no longer is. And Thomas Kennedy, the captain, wasn't on board because he almost never was. But, and he, Chinese... but he went to the consul. Do you, am I jumping ahead or do you have more? No. Yeah, so, so Kennedy goes to the I guess consul is Parks? <clears throat> yes. Apparently Parks uh, actually got slapped by someone at some point. Ye Ming Chen himself or someone like this. But uh, he, went and, he went to protest um, and some, somewhere along the line somebody got slapped. <laughs> somewhere <laughs> well, and uh, uh, so he goes to Bowring and Bowring writes uh home I guess yeah, uh, and yeah. he says cannot we use the opportunity and carry the city question if so I will come up with a whole fleet yeah that's basically what happened Ye, Ye Ming Chen was perfectly reasonable when Parks protested Ye pointed out that there was no flag so we meant no insult there was no Englishman on board. It's it's all Chinese, so purely Chinese matter. He pointed out that the registry had lapsed, so they, they knew all this. And he offered to return most of the crew, keeping only two men who had been positively identified as pirates. So Parks has been informed, and it seems pretty clear that he knew that this was all true. But, you know, why let that bother you? So <clears throat> uh, the Arrow incident escalated Surely, swiftly, and smoothly. That's according to Robert Bickers. So obviously, this is a, a tempest in a teapot, uh, a minor dispute that could have been resolved in, in a matter of a day, if the British had wanted to. And clearly, they didn't. So why didn't they want to settle this? It seems that they weren't happy with the results of the first opium war. They didn't get enough. And uh, when I uh, there's another long uh, discussion of Marx that I have planned, and uh, when I get to that, I can okay. tell you what he thought about the inadequacy <laughs> of what they were getting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So opium is still illegal. Uh, British merchants want more access because they're limited to the the treaty ports, right? They have more ports open, but they're limited to those, and they're not allowed to travel inland. And Ye Ming Chen has been pretty steadily limiting their reach and, and ad adhering strictly to the treaty. So that's not good enough, and the British decide, let's use this incident uh, to cause some trouble. So they did. A Chinese vessel was seized, then a fort, and then finally they went to the old faithful and went and bombarded Canton. Um, so... I'll the conflict that oh. follows is going to be called by Chinese scholars the Second Opium War. By the British, it's going to be called the Second Anglo-Chinese War, and in some cases, even the Arrow War. What, <laughs> what's funny is that the Arrow, which is the ostensible cause of the war, will barely be mentioned again after this. Yeah. You know, remember the Arrow for about 15 minutes, and then after that, you know, what the hell. We're good to go. I guess this is after the Alamo, right? So they have that uh, they have that trope ready. Remember the <laughs> arrow. Remember. Yeah. The... So October twenty third, eighteen fifty six. Uh, Rear Admiral Seymour attacks the barrier forts. He kills five uh, Chinese defenders. He calls this ill judged resistance. Uh, 
Um, Ye Ming Chen calls the militia and gets his 200 ships ready, but despite the numerical advantage, the story of this period continues. Uh, the technological disparity is impossible to overcome. On October 28th, uh, the British shell Ye Ming Chen's residence. Um, <laughs> he circulates the story that he was just hanging out in the backyard reading a book <laughs> while, while they bom- ineffectually bombarded his house. But well, on the, a- the, the dates are interesting because the Arrow incident was October 8th. So here we are like two weeks later and the British are already gone to bombarding. So they have apparently enough local, they don't have to check back in London. Is it okay to start a war with China? Obviously they're uh, pretty confident that it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there are dramas that take place back home, which we'll get to, but mm-hmm. yeah, it turns out that they were right to think it was okay. On October 29th, uh, the British take the walls of Canton. They plant the British flag and a drunken American, uh, I think his name was Freeman, uh, runs up and waves the American flag from the wall. So Ye, seeing this, offers a truce. Uh, the British rebuff. Seymour keeps shelling. He writes home. He doesn't shell on Sundays. But he also needs 5,000 men to take the actual city, which he doesn't have. Um, in November, something interesting happens. The Taiping come with an armada. Uh, and the British, uh, you know, the Taiping think, hey, we can link up. We're both fighting the regime. Let's Let's do it. The British stop them far from Canton and send them back. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, nothing to see here, <laughs> typing. Um, so on J- January 1857, Ye tries to, he has, he's got plans. Like these, the people that are up against uh, the imperialists in this period, they don't have the technology, right? But they are very ingenious and they're constantly trying to reverse engineer. Um, you know, they have a lot of ingenuity and they have a fair amount of resources. So the British can't just uh, sit and, and assume that technological superiority is going to do the trick here. So at, at, in January, Ye tries to load up ships with gunpowder and send them at the, the British ships, which didn't work in this case, but it uh, freaks the British out a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, Seymour sails for Macau. Uh, he kind of relieves. <laughs> he doesn't like the look of this situation. Um, and there's a poisoning of British people in, in uh, Hong Kong. Um, it's a big, it's also worked up into a big incident like the, uh, like the arrow incident. Um, and, uh, <laughs> Ye kind of does the bureaucratic thing. The British are like, Hey, you were poisoning, uh, you know, the ambassador or something like this. And Ye says, Hey, uh, you know, this is not a good thing, but, uh, the perpetrators in Hong Kong, I can't really proceed against him. He's in your jurisdiction, not mine. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, so the British uh, do terrible things. They um, they round up 500 people. They do this kind of mass colonial mass reprisal type thing. You will see a lot of it over the next uh, 80 years or so uh, here and elsewhere. Um, half of the Chinese residents of Hong Kong actually flee to Australia or California in this period. Probably quite of them, probably some of them are made into coolies, according to our previous uh episode note so bowering sends uh to india uh uh to lord canning the viceroy i guess Um, did he get any troops uh i don't think so because this is the same year as the indian rebellion the big giant mutiny right the the indian war of independence so it's quite amazing like this is again like I'm amazed by what the imperialists what the British are doing in so many different parts of the world at the same time. Like they're doing this while they're suppressing the Indian mutiny. It's yeah, it's quite Well, what yeah, the navy as yeah. opposed to the army, right? Yeah, and I guess the the other thing is the these are Indian troops that are doing all this. All the fighting is done by Indians for the most part. So. Mm-hmm. Uh February 9th, 1857, the foreign minister um, orders the blockade of Beijing's rice supply. So this is, I thought this was starvation, but it actually, um, Beijing ate mostly wheat. So rice is not as big of a, of a staple at this point, um, as it maybe you might think it is, but the blockade of a right of the rice supply is significant. Um, they're trying to seek the following concessions. So the British, 
in exchange for the um, in exchange for all the terrible things that they suffered because of the arrow incident, they want ambassadors at the court in Beijing in the capital, and they want full commercial and missionary access. So that's the only way to get justice for the suffering of their um, people. Right. <laughs> February <laughs> February 24th, 1857. Uh, there's a no confidence vote against Palmerston, um, the, I guess the prime minister, uh, at, uh, at the House of, in the House of Lords. Um, and it's by the speaker, you know, the person bringing the motion is the Earl of Derby. Who's a Tory? I guess Palmerston's a Whig. Uh, and Earl of D- the Earl of Derby says, "I am an advocate for the feeble defenselessness of China against the overpowering might of Great Britain. I am an advocate for weakness against power, for perplexed and bewildered barbarism against the arrogant demands of overweening self-styled civilization." So Palmerston, seeing this no confidence situation, he's kind of worried. So he goes to work, um, uh, giving out patronage. <laughs> so. <laughs> He gives oh, yeah. he gives a key player the uh, Earl of Shaftesbury, I think. Um, he gives him the right to appoint bishops in the Church of England, and he kind of sh- shifts uh, sides, and the <laughs> the vote is defe- defeated. <laughs> but in between, uh, one of the Whigs, um, Lord Clarendon, replies to the Earl of Derby, and he says, "I fear that we must come to the conclusion that in dealing with a nation like the Chinese, if we intend." To preserve any amicable or useful relations with them, they must we must make them sensible of the law of force and must appeal to them in the manner which they alone can appreciate. Where have I heard that before or since? Um, anyway, uh, Palmerston wins the vote. The no-confidence vote uh, is, is uh, shut down, 146 to 110. But Palmerston's problems are not over, Dave. Uh, Cobden in the House of Commons tries another no-confidence vote. Um, And Gladstone, our old opium war opponent, he says in the House of Commons, he says, your greatest and most valuable trade in China is opium. It is a smuggling trade. It is the worst, the most pernicious, demoralizing, and destructive of all the contraband trades that are carried upon the surface of the globe. Um, And Disraeli, who's going to become a pretty big player in British imperialism from this point on. Uh, Disraeli tells uh, Palmerston, you know, this is your, what you're doing in China right now is really uh, deceptive. What you should really run, you should, if you really believe in your convictions, you should run on your real platform. You should run on a platform of no reform, new taxes, Canton blazing. <laughs> <laughs> And you know what? Palmerston says, don't mind if I do. <laughs> um, so Palmerston says, uh, he in, in the House, he loses the vote. He doesn't really defend very effectively. He, he basically says the following. He says, we can pay for our purchases only partly in goods. The rest we must pay in opium and silver. Um, but then he starts basically running, uh, he, he, the house, you know, there, there's the, with, with losing the confidence vote, that means there's new, there's a new election. There's an election and Palmerston's campaign is basically, he's campaigning against Ye Ming Chen. <laughs> so it's like, uh, it's like George W. Bush running against Osama bin Laden or something, right? Or, well, it or works. Saddam Hussein. And it works every time. It works every time. So Palmerston runs and he says, you know, Ye is one of the most savage barbarians that ever disgraced a nation. Ye has been guilty of every crime which can degrade and debase human nature. If the house doesn't back Palmerston, the Europeans in China will be massacred. So vote for me. And I'll stop this barbarian from massacring Europeans. Again. Right. Because obviously the Chinese are waiting for the vote results (laughs) before deciding to massacre (laughs) massacre people. So during the election, uh, Palmerston announces the new envoy to China. And this is one of the most amazing imperialists you'll ever hear about, Dave. I'm so... 
I'm just, I'm so fascinated by this person. I'm going to have tons of quotes from this guy, his diaries, <laughs> like he is one weird character, but he's, he's been the, I'm going to introduce him with appropriate pomp and ceremony. He's been the governor of Jamaica from 1842 to 1846. He was the governor of British North America from 1847 to 1854 when Canada received its responsible government. That period we talked about of Baldwin and Lafontaine, this was Lord, this was this guy, the governor general at this time. Um, There are streets named after him in pretty much every Canadian city. Streets, ports. Um, His father uh, stole (laughs) parts of the Parthenon and sold them at a loss to the British Museum in 1816. We are talking about James Bruce, one of the defendants, I mean, descendants of Robert the Bruce, Dave. Um, aka Lord Elgin. That's who we're talking about here, Lord Elgin. Um, and you will hear a lot about Elgin. Um, so from May to June 1857, uh, Palmerston wins the, the election running against Ye by a landslide. And the Foreign Office actually sends Elgin to China with um, the following caution He says, Don't try to take Canton. Uh, work on getting an ambassador in Beijing. Get more ports, open China more. And this is, again, like Marx, Marx's point, they need, they kind of have this economic pressure to try to get their, get more of a market in China. It's not what they're getting isn't satisfying them. And Elgin actually has to divert a, quite a bit of his troops that he takes from Britain on, on the way uh, to suppress the rebellion in India. 1,700 troops um, get diverted. So Elgin... Elgin does not want to support his his position on it is he doesn't want to support the Taiping. He doesn't want to break China up. He wants to um, preserve the the Manchu, uh, and he says um, so. So this is where like his really strange psychology starts uh, being part of the story. He says, "I think this is in his diary. Can I do anything to prevent England from calling down on herself God's curse?" for brutalities committed on another feeble oriental race or are all my exertions to result only in an extension of the area over which Englishmen are to exhibit how hollow and superficial are both their civilization and their Christianity. (laughs) He's like the most reluctant imperialist. No mention of the arrow in there, was there? Oh no, he's all he's his anguish. His anguish goes much deeper than the goings on on one little ship. Dave, he's he's an anguished person. So he goes to India on his way, right? He lands in Calcutta in the middle of the rebellion. Like the rebellion started, if you guys remember our episodes on 1857 India. Um, it's in May, really, that it kicks off. Elgin is there in June, June 14th. He lands in Calcutta. And he's shocked by the atrocities. And here are his conclusions about how, you know, based on these shocked feelings. He says, It is a terrible business, however, this living among inferior races. Detestation, contempt, ferocity, vengeance, whether Chinamen or Indians be the object. There are some three or four hundred servants in this house. When one first passes by their salaming, one feels a little awkward. But the feeling soon wears off and one moves among them with perfect indifference, treating them not as dogs, because in that case one would whistle to them and pat them, but as machines with which one can have no communion or sympathy. When the passions of fear and hatred are engrafted on this indifference, the result is frightful, an absolute callousness as to the sufferings of the objects of those passions, which must be witnessed to be understood and believed. Deep, right? You'd you'd really think that it was like not the guy who was doing it. Like he somehow got some ability to like step outside of his body. <laughs> uh, so he arrives in China September twentieth, eighteen fifty seven, and he gets the order to take Canton after all <laughs> on October fourteenth. Um, meanwhile, President Buchanan has sent uh, an American minister, Will- William Reed, on the ship the Minnesota. So the Americans are joining this little expedition as are the French, for on December 27th, 1857, uh, after Christmas, um, and the Boxing Day sales are over, uh, the British and French start shelling Canton. So they kill 200 people, they set Canton on fire, the Marines land and attack. Um, the Chinese have this thing called a gingle. People, you should look up the gingle, okay? G-I-N-G-A-L-L. 
Um, look at pictures of the gingle. It's it's a musket that's held by two people. <laughs> so one guy's at the back firing, and the other guy's got it over his shoulder, and uh, they fire it. It fires a big bullet, not far compared to the mus- the rifles that the uh, British and French have at this point. So the Chinese are fighting with their gingles. The British lose. Uh, I mean, the British lose 100 people, so the Gingles are not totally ineffective, but the Chinese lose another 500 uh, against the Marines. And then the British uh, take the city, most of it, and they loot. So 90% of the people flee. Elgin sends the Marines to take the treasury of Canton. So that's 52 boxes of silver, 68 boxes of gold, and a million dollars in cash. So we've got the receipts on that one. Um, And the loot is sent off to India. Uh, January... Uh, 5th, 1858, they capture Ye Ming Chen, and they send him to Calcutta uh, uh, under arrest, uh, imprisoned, uh, basically. And he's imprisoned close to the deposed king of Avad. So you remember the story of the king of Avad who was deposed and put into exile in Bengal. Well, Ye Ming Chen is placed somewhere on the same street as him. Uh, to live out the rest of his days, which are not very long after that point. So um, May 20th, May 20th, 1858, Elgin's armada sails to Dagu. This is a problem. The Dagu forts, uh, uh, usually um, they take the mud forts there after a battle. Uh, on May 26th, they take Tianjin. Um, and Elgin is, uh, you know, Elgin is losing some of that melancholy feeling that he had after his visit to India. And he says, there's certainly not much to regret in the old civilization, which we are thus scattering to the winds. <laughs> they use uh, one of the temples for a headquarters. They turn the courtyard into a bowling alley and, you know, hang out in Tianjin. Um, so there are negotiations here. They set up here for a long time from basically May to July. Um, the British uh, have the following demands. Okay, they don't want they don't want the Chinese to call them barbarians anymore, even in their own correspondence. So you're not even allowed to call us barbarians when you're talking to each other. They want to trade in Nanjing, ha, Tianjin, Hangzhou, um, and the French Baron Gros. I don't know if he crops up again, but he's uh, the negotiator on the French side. And he thinks they're asking for too much. So this is one of these di- diplomacy problems, right? If you if you create resentment, you're um, <laughs> this is going to come up <laughs> in the next class, isn't it? Post World War One, uh, it's it's possible to get too much out of your out of a treaty, uh, friends. Uh, historically, so the French Baron Gros says the concessions demanded are exorbitant and perhaps even dangerous for England. So they demand more reparations. And Baron Gros says this, but then he takes, he's happy to take the money. So they demand 4 million reparations for Britain, 2 million for France. Um, and Elgin understands that these demands are so onerous. He says, the Chinese can only meet these demands by putting forward pecuniary claims, which it could satisfy only by measures that would increase its unpopularity and extend the area of the rebellion. So naturally, he takes the money (laughs) Uh, the other thing that happens is russia and america they want this thing called the most favored nation clause inserted into the treaty and that means when china gives one thing to one imperialist it has to give it to all the imperialists well actually Uh, i think it means that whatever you give to somebody else you have to give to us yeah yeah exactly it doesn't mean you have to give it to the others. Oh, yeah. If you get it but for yourself. But if you yourself. give them something that we don't have, we mm-hmm. automatically get it. We automatically it. get it, yeah. Then there's a very hated one, extraterritoriality, which comes with imperialism everywhere. That means we are tried on our laws as imperialists, not on your laws. So if we kill somebody or whatever, we commit a crime, you don't deal with it locally. We deal with it. So it basically means we're exempt from diplomatic community your laws yeah for anybody for any for everybody yeah Yeah. uh ambassadors to beijing which is like a really important thing for them and it turns out it is important in in terms of their ability to extend uh imperialism in china they want the freedom to go anywhere in china this is what french especially want they want to be able to do their missionary work anywhere 
you want to be able to Christianize people. And then here's the key, the the British get taxation revenue collection rates like they got in India. So this, oh, in 1757, this was the first step to the British takeover of all of India was the ability to collect revenue on behalf of the Nawab. Um, and this is, uh, this is what they do uh, here. So Elgin's pretty happy with this. And um, he says, he says the following <laughs> in his journal, Dave. I have an instinct in me which loves righteousness and hates iniquity, and all this keeps me in a perpetual boil, though I have been forced to act almost brutally. I am China's friend in almost all this. Is this a good time for the if with friends like these? <laughs> you know, but I've heard this kind of thing many times before. Yeah. Like, I'm the best friend you have. I'm the best friend you have, yeah. And this is the guy who in his diary writes, you know, I know we're asking for a lot of money and it's going to screw China over and it's probably going to make them have to, you know, raise taxes, which will make the Taiping rebellion worse. But I'm your friend. <laughs> so there's actually people that are dead set opposed to these treaties in China at the kind of grassroots level. So the regime also is having some trouble ramming these treaties down people's throats. There are guerrilla actions against the treaty um, in Canton itself. Um, so <laughs> Elgin, Elgin privately worries. He's like, you know, if people hate us this much, maybe we don't want our foreign ambassadors in Beijing. Um, he passes by Taiping held Nanjing for 90 minutes. I mean, he passes by the Nanjing. Um, and uh, I think they fire on his fleet ineffectively so he he lobs some shells at them he shells nanjing for 90 minutes before continuing up the river uh so now just as a signpost november 1858 uh is basically when the um in the most of the for the most part the indian mutiny the 1857 war is ended in in india and crushed um and uh, the East India Company is formally dissolved and the British Raj begins in India. So that's the end of 1858. Um, around, so now we're 1859, uh, February, the guerrillas actually ma massacre 700 British Marines um, in and around Canton. Um, so the British uh, do a mass reprisal kind of general massacre in Shenzhen. Um in eighteen in March, Elgin goes home for a little bit. He's replaced by his brother Bruce. I don't remember. I don't know what his another, first name. Another is. Bruce. Yeah, another Bruce. Uh, but he goes by. We, we'll call him Bruce. And Admiral Hope um, is running the military side of it. So in June eighteen fifty nine, the with the new management, the Armada sails further up the Yangtze River, bombarding villages along the way, and they have trouble at a place called Beihe. I guess some people spell it p-e-i-h-o um or the older transcription is b-e-i-h-e -E. um and admiral hope actually gets wounded by chinese artillery there are americans there um the american ships have indigenous names which is totally you know that's one of these things about america right so the powhatan is one of the ships the toe Huan is another one of the ships and the admiral or the 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 um, American commander, he says, blood is thicker than water. I'll be damned if I stand by and see white men butchered before my eyes. So the British, French, and Americans do a landing, but they lose 500 casualties out of 1,000 attackers. They lose three ships. Um, so Bruce, um, you know, he's on point. He blames the Russians. <laughs> he says, I'm sure that I saw Russian advisors among the defenders of Peyo. <laughs> Well, this is only a few years after the Crimean War, so the Russians are still bad. <laughs> the Russians are everywhere, yeah. So Palmerston says, yeah, yeah, Russians, exactly. <laughs> so the London Times uh, writes, Whatever may be the result of the fight, England will never forget the day when the deeds and words of kindly Americans sustained and comfort her, comforted her stricken warriors on the waters of the Beihou. Hmm. Um, there's a Chinese commander who actually uh, is pretty important in this war, Prince Sengulinchin. He's taken a Canadian 
prisoner of war um, and interrogates him. John Powers is his name. No relation, right, Dave? No. <laughs> Powers with an S are usually uh, Protestants. <laughs> okay. Um, but the commander, this Prince Sengu, Sengu Linqin, he says they are sure to go to Canton and Shanghai, collect more warships and plan revenge. So they, they know what's coming. Um, so let me just do a little interlude about Lord Elgin so that I can get this out of my system because some of the weirdest quotes um, I've ever come across. Um, so he's a, he's a kind, gentle imperialist. He's very reluctant about these atrocities and he's, he's really like sickened by what he has to do and what they make him do. Um, there's this thing that I, I think it's Israel, Israelis that say about the Palestinians, or I don't know whether it's satire, but it's like, we can forgive you for what you've done, but we can't forgive you for what you've made us do to you or something. <laughs> That's the vibe I get from Lord Elkin. Um, so leaving, so Japan, he feels is different. Uh, so he actually visited Japan, and when he leaves Japan, he says, it's the only place I have left with any feeling of regret since I reached this abominable East, abominable not so much in itself, but because it is strewed all over with records of our violence and fraud. Um, when he bombarded Nanjing, or, yeah, Nanjing, or Nanjing he, he was on his way there, and he was hoping they would communicate with him so he could let them know he didn't have any problem with them. But he wrote in his journal, it is impossible to anticipate what these stupid Chinamen will do. Uh, when they do shoot at his flotilla, he shoots at them for 90 minutes. He bombards them and he says, I bombarded them until we had done enough for our honor. So there's the pro-war lobby, right, that's pushing for an expanded war. And he kind of chastises them. He writes to them and he says, neither our own consciences nor the judgment of mankind will acquit us. If when we are asked to what use we have turned our opportunities, we can only say that we have filled our pockets from among the ruins which we have found or made. Um, and then there's a really interesting stuff about like the relationship between their imperialism in India and China. Because he says to Lord Russell, we might annex the empire if we were in the humor to take a second India into hand, or we might change the dynasty if we knew where to find a better. Um, and he likes the idea of Nanjing being the capital. He says, if the capital of China were moved nearer to our military presence like Nanjing, England could control the Chinese empire with four gunboats. <laughs> um, so uh, later on, a spoiler alert, they're going to burn uh, the Summer Palace. I've, I told you a lot about the Summer Palace, several, ep uh, I guess, in the first Opium War episode. But I'm going to read a long quote about um, from Lord Elgin about burning the palace. Uh, and this is, I think, in Parliament that he says this. He says, I assure you that no one regretted more sincerely than I did the destruction of that collection of summer houses and kiosks already and previously to any act of mine rifled of their contents, which was dignified by the title of Summer Palace of the Chinese Emperor. But when I had satisfied myself that in no other way except indeed by inflicting on this country and on China the calamity of another year of war, could I mark the sense which I entertained, which the British army entertained, and which, moreover, I make bold in the presence of this company to say, the people of this country entertained, of an atrocious crime, which if I had passed unpunished, would have placed in jeopardy the life of every European in China. I felt that the time had come when I must choose between the indulgence of a not unnatural sensibility and the performance of a painful duty. The alternative is not a pleasant one, but I trust that there is no man serving the crown in a responsible position who would hesitate when it is presented to him as the decision at which he should arrive. One thing I notice about these imperialists, too, is like it's they're really hard. You have to read it more than once to get the point. But the point in this case is by burning the palace down, he was being merciful um, and, uh, you know. And you would have done the same thing in his shoes. Uh, yeah, I think it sounds like uh, tough love. Yeah, tough love. The Earl Grey, uh, who was against expanding the war, he um, he said, he, I think he was a former viceroy, actually, of India. He said, our experience of India ought to warn us on this subject. It ought to teach us that it is easy to destroy an Asiatic government, but not so easy to replace it. 
The difficulties of India are nothing compared with those to be expected in China if you if you should there also pull down the national institutions and government. And this, my lords, is what I fear you are doing. On the other hand, another former governor general of India, Earl of Ellenborough, he thinks this is true, but he thinks it's good. He said, look, opening trade means opening fire. <laughs> um, That's concise. <laughs> Lord Russell... Uh, who mocks one of the members of parliament who wants to uh, kind of stay out of stay out of the war uh, in this because of that cycles of revolution theory. So they believe the Taiping, you know, probably are the next cycle and, and they should stay out of the way. And Lord Russell mocks that member and he says, I am very much more neutral than the honorable member because the, the member of parliament wants to give them rights and say, in the name of neutrality, right? So Lord Russell says, I am very much more neutral than the honorable member. I never much admired the civilization and still less the humanity of the Chinese. Um, so that's the kind of jokes that are being made. Um, the economist thinks they should have avoided all but the most necessary intervention. <laughs> which, which is what? Sort of begs the question <laughs> in the sense. Um, Elgin says in his observations along the Yangtze River, he says, what I have seen leads me to think that the rural population of China is generally speaking well-doing and contented. I worked very hard, though, with only indifferent success to obtain from them accurate information respecting the extent of their holdings, the nature of their tenure, the taxation which they have to pay and other kindred matters. Why was he so interested in that, do you think? Um, I arrived at the conclusion that for the most part, they hold their lands, which are of very limited extent, in full property from the crown, subject to certain annual ch charges of no very exorbitant amount, and that these advantages improved by assiduous industry supply abundantly their simple wants, whether in respect of food or clothing. So that's uh, that's the world that's coming to an end now, <laughs> the world of the uh, you know prosperous you know self sufficient peasant life. Um, uh, we've quoted John Stuart Mill before, but just to remind everybody, John Stuart Mill is the great political economist, um, and he thinks that the prohibition of importation of opium into China violates the liberty of the buyer even more than that of the producer or seller. And, what? um, <laughs> yeah, people have the right to buy the opium for God's sake. He also, he also finds that appeals to humanity and Christianity in favor of ruffians and to international law in favor of peoples who recognize no laws of war at all are ridiculous. So, um, okay, that's uh, that's Elgin. Now I have another interlude about Marx. And this is just um, the economic analysis that Marx brings to this just makes a lot of sense. So um, one, of the, one of the things that is really notable about these opium wars, Dave, is that they're wars that the imperialists fight because the Chinese are financially doing too well. So what I mean by this is, after World War One, and we'll we'll talk about this. I'm not sure when, but sometime in the future of this series, um, the British and French kind of took over the whole Arab world based on debt. So they were sort of like, "Look, Ottoman Empire, you owe us a lot of money, and we're going to just take over these various territories of yours as colonies, um, and that'll you know put you on a better financial footing with us." So. The Ottoman Empire was heavily indebted to the European powers. China was not, right? China was doing just fine. China had all the money that they want, they could ever wanted. They were not um, buying stuff on, um, <laughs> you know, on debt. The if anything, it was the opposite. It was they were getting all the silver from the Europeans. Um, so it's usually like a as a debt collection that the the British or, or French will um, intervene and acquire territory. But in this case, it's like, really, <laughs> it's, there's no, it's so, it's so hard for them to come up with a pretext that. Well, the first know. opium war, the pretext was free trade. Yeah. So you right. won that war, you got what you wanted and yeah. then realized afterwards, well, we could have got more. So <laughs> that's why the arrow is a pretext. Yeah. We and got later, something. 
through and war. In, in later yeah. examples, they're going to do something they learn here, which is, you know, uh, the barbarism and cruelty and savagery of these people. Yeah. We have to teach them a lesson in civilization. So we yeah. send in missionaries and merchants, push them right up their noses, and when <laughs> they respond with violence, there we go. You see the savagery and the barbarism. Yeah. And therefore, we have to invade and take their stuff. So Marx is not perfect. Um, he says that uh, China is has this fossil form of social life. He calls it hereditary stupidity and stuff. But hear me out, okay? <laughs> hear me out. Um, he actually sees that Peho incident as kind of a stitch up. And he shows evidence. So here's his very careful analysis of what happened at Beho and the, that like level of pretext for the escalation of the war. He says, the first question to be answered is whether on the supposition of the Treaty of Tianjin stipulates for the immediate access to Peking of the British ambassador. The Chinese government have committed an infraction of that treaty wrung by, from them by a piratical war in withstanding the forcible passage by a British squadron of the Beho River. As will be seen from the news conveyed by the Overland Mail, the Chinese authorities had objected not to the British mission to Beijing, but to the British armament ascending the Beihe. They had proposed that Mr. Bruce should travel by land, divested of an armament which, with a fresh collection of recollection of the Canton bombardment, the Celestials could but consider the instrument of invasion. Does the right of the French ambassador to reside at London involve the right of forcing the River Thames at the head of an armed French expedition? It must certainly be allowed that this interpretation put by the British on the admission to Beijing of the ambassador sounds at least as strange as the discovery made by them during the last Chinese war that in bombarding the town of an empire, you are not waging war upon that empire itself, but only exchanging local hostilities with one of its dependencies. <laughs> in answer to the reclamations of the Celestials, the British had taken, according to their own statement, every precaution to force, if necessary, admission to Beijing by ascending the Peho with a rather formidable squadron. Even if bound to admit their Pacific ambassador, the Chinese were certainly warranted in resisting their armed expedition. In thus acting, they did not infringe a treaty, but baffled an encroachment. So I just, again, like, it's it's so sensible, <laughs> the stuff that he says, that, you know, when people all over England are saying, you know, you killed our guys and, you know, you're the worst villain since whatever... And Marx is just like, let's look at your treaty, <laughs> what you agreed to, um, and the logic. So he also argues um, that, so now to, the, to his economic analysis, he says, it appears to us after a careful survey of the history of Chinese commerce, that generally speaking, the consuming and paying powers of the Chinese have been greatly overestimated. And why is that? It is the same combination of husbandry with manufacturing industry, which for a long time withstood and still checks the export of British wares to East India. But there, that combination was based on a peculiar constitution of the landed property, which the British, in their position as the supreme landlords of the country, had it in their power to undermine and thus forcibly convert part of the Hindu self-sustaining communities into mere farms, producing opium, cotton, indigo, hemp, and other raw materials in exchange for British stuff. In China, the English have not yet wielded this power, nor are they likely ever to do so. Mm. So it's just, you know, he just kind of cuts right to it. He's like, look, you guys are fantasizing that you can get, you know, get your exports to this massive market the way you did with India. But you did something to India that, is a one-off like you will not be able to do that to china and and uh yeah turns out he was right but um not before a lot more suffering so um palmerston's back at age 75 uh derby is out um and the times of london uh says now the when the war continues, he says, we shall teach such a lesson to these perfidious hordes that the name of European will hereafter be a passport of fear if it cannot be of love throughout their land. So uh, Palmerston at this point, he wants to occupy Beijing. 
Um, Elgin warns the cabinet that this is a bad idea. He says, if you humiliate the emperor beyond measure, you imperil the most lucrative trade you have in the world. Um, Lord Ellenborough says, again, it is not my lord's lawful to make war for the purpose of making money. To do so is to commit a crime. It is based on wrong, and wrong will not continually be protected by providence. Wait, 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 wait. Isn't that the guy who said opening trade is opening fire? Yeah, yeah, same guy. (laughs) He's consistent. (laughs) He's amazing. Um, So Elgin takes over for his brother again, April 1860. He he, uh, he sails right back to China. He stops stops in in France, check in with Napoleon III. Um, He wants to make sure that Napoleon III doesn't have any territorial ambitions in China. So Napoleon III is able to reassure him uh, because he's got plans in Vietnam. Which we will address in a future issue. Yeah. Elgin uh, has a new weapon, the 25-pound Armstrong field gun. Uh, The French are sending a 75-ton gunboat. um, And you remember good old Lord Wolseley? Garnet. (laughs) From, uh, yeah, from... Everywhere. From everywhere, but most recently, I suppose, from the Real uh, Resistance. No, Opium War One. Um, and he says uh, about coolies. So they're using coolies, right, to carry their stuff and so on. So Wolseley says they're lawless and cruel, but a single coolie was of more general value than any three baggage animals. They were easily fed and when properly treated, most manageable. Nice guy. Uh, and then there's General James Hope Grant, a veteran of the 1857 India. He commands a contingent of Sikh cavalry as well as uh, the rest of the troops. Um, they start by taking Chusan and Shanghai, um, which uh, are kind of in near the Taiping base areas. In July 1860, the 200-ship armada unloads near Beitang. They commit a whole bunch of rapes, loots, uh, looting. Uh, women overdose on opium and commit suicide to escape. Um, from this book, uh, Autumn in the Heavenly Kingdom, I'm just checking the author. I think his name's Platt. I think I've been referring to him all this time. Uh, yeah, Stephen Platt. Um, he says, on the morning of August 9th, still waiting for orders to advance, a group of six bored French soldiers stripped naked and spent the morning running and slipping about gaily in the mud near their headquarters with long sticks, chasing down scavenger dogs and beating them to death. I, I just, that passage just <laughs> struck me as something, just an image from this war that, you know. Anyway, the Taiping send word that they're not going to harm the foreigners in Shanghai. Uh, in August 1860, there are cavalry battles around Tianjin. The Armstrong gun is very useful, repelling the Manchu cavalry. So the Europeans advance into Tianjin. Um, Elgin talks to the Chinese env- envoy. He doesn't like the way they talk to him. He says, these stupid people give me a snub when I'm, you know, I'm here with all the power in the world. And they- Yeah, there's something going on here. And that is that the Chinese do not want the Europeans to come to Beijing mm-hmm. and the Europeans are saying we are coming to Beijing yeah. in force yeah. and we're going to talk to the emperor. Well, that's can't be allowed to happen. So the Chinese are going to use on the one hand uh, armed resistance and that's going to be overcome. And then they'll also try delay, avoid, negotiate, you know, try to delay and talk them out of it. And that's going to frustrate uh, Elgin. But you can understand why they're doing it. Uh, so they they do attack uh, the Taiping in Shanghai in August 1860, and we'll get more into the Europeans and yeah. in, in, uh, in versus the Taiping in the next episode. But, um, September 1860, Si Shi, the uh, concubine slash em- empress dowager at this point, I think, uh, she encourages the emperor to stay. Um, Prince Sung makes a last stand at Zhangjiawan, 20,000 troops against 3,500 French and British. But again, the technological mismatch makes it impossible. They have these firelock muskets, gingles against the Enfield rifle and the Armstrong field gun. So there are 1,500 Chinese casualties, 
35 on the European side. So again, the British and French loot, rape, and pillage uh, at this town. There's another battle in Tongxian. 2,000 Chinese are killed. Three French are killed. Uh, the French commander, de Montauban, he finds this 20-ton marble tortoise, and he says, oh, I like that. Take it back to Paris. But it's uh, too heavy, so they don't. Um, Tongshan surrenders. There's another pillage, loot, and rape. And what we hear about pillaging, looting, and raping, we hear from the English about the French and from the French about the English. So the English say this about the French. They are cautious enough when armed enemies, even Chinese, are in question, but indisputably valorous against defenseless villages and little-footed women. So it's probably true. And then the French say this about the English. Quand aux Anglais ce sont nos maîtres, on ne trouve pas un clou où ils ont passé. <laughs> as, for the, as for the English, they are our superiors when it comes to looting. You can't even find a nail <laughs> where they have passed. That's very good. Yeah, uh, October 7th, they take Beijing. It's basically undefended. The emperor has left for a nearby hunting lodge. And one of the British uh, say this quote. They say, could we have had our way? Every Mandarin in Beijing would have been strung up. So there's this thing that happens. Some uh, Europeans are captured and they're killed by the Chinese in Beijing. Well, it's not just a thing. Yeah. Okay, so you've got the, the Chinese military commanders are losing... And there's the old deal of they can't tell the emperor the truth. So they're inventing victories. They're telling them that the, the barbarians are afraid, and yet they keep coming. So when they captured some prisoners, they basically made a show of them for the emperor's benefit. And they uh, tortured and, and killed them in a particularly nasty fashion. Yeah. Like so... the death of a thousand cuts. Right. And that's, that's going to drive the barbarians just a little bit crazier than usual. <laughs> right. So um, they're, uh, when, they, when they get to Beijing, they start their looting. Um, they loot. They actually hold an auction um, at their camp on October 11th. Yeah, that's for the benefit of the officers. In case some of the enlisted men found something of, you know, that might be nice to bring home, they can buy it off them for a reasonable price. So Haynes and Sonello write, many objects from the palace remain to this day adorning private stately homes of Britain. One French soldier referring to his own behavior, he says, I don't believe that anyone has seen anything like this since the sack of Rome by the barbarians. Um, I got a really good quote by Charles Gordon. Oh yeah, gonna, he'll yeah. be in the next episode too. You're going to talk a lot about him. Um, he's also in the scramble for Africa, pretty Pretty instrumental in the scramble for Africa. So here's Charles Gordon on the looting of Beijing and the burning of the Summer Palace. We accordingly went out and, after pillaging it, burned the whole place, destroying in a vandal-like manner most valuable property, which would not be replaced for four millions. You can scarcely imagine the beauty and magnificence of the places we burnt. It made, one, it made one's heart sore to burn them. In fact, these palaces were so large... And, were so pressed, and we were so pressed for time that we could not plunder them carefully. Quantities of gold ornaments were burnt, considered as brass. It was wretchedly demoralizing work. Um, Lord Elgin writes in his diary the following words. I am not a thief. Yeah, so this is what he was referring to <laughs> earlier when he talked about how, how hard it was to do this act of vandalism. So it's retaliation yeah. for the torture and murder of a handful of prisoners. Right. And that's their justification. It, it's a little bit like what they did in India with yeah. the retaliation, like way, way over the top. Yeah. And also they've been raping and pillaging and massacring their way up the river. Oh, but, yeah, but the right to count. retaliate against them is not does not exist, right? That doesn't count. No. So the French are also appalled by what they are doing. They call it destruction for the pleasure of destruction. And uh, when they're finally, when they finally have their meeting, there's a whole thing about like, basically Elgin is trying to offend the emperor and the emperor is trying to offend Elgin. And, uh, you know, so 
the emperor alone, the Chinese emperor, is entitled to be carried by eight porters in uh, this cust, you know, in the imperial custom. So Elgin makes sure that he is carried by eight porters. Um, he shows up with five hundred troops and an artillery piece aimed at the gate. He keeps the prince waiting for two hours. The prince, uh, the Chinese prince, who's sent to negotiate with him. So uh, it's all there's all these kind of games, these kind of dominance games um, going on. So here are some. Do you do, do you have any last notes before we get into the uh, post-war? The, bur- the burning of the Suburb Palace is, uh, I think, rightly considered an atrocity. Uh, I'm not downplaying murder and rape and looting, but this is a you know those things you can argue in the heat of battle in quotation marks, right? That's the usual yeah, yeah. excuse. This was a calculated, deliberate act of vandalism on a scale like you just destroyed the pyramids. Imagine going and blowing up the pyramids just to send, you know, Egypt a message. And and what is that message? I don't even I don't even know. This is one of the wonders of the world and it's gone. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So they get the treaty that they want. They get the treaty that they want, and everybody gets the treaty. There's treaties for everybody now. Oh yes. China has uh, China has decided they're not going to uh, they're not going to hold up treaties anymore because uh, the British have, as they like to say, taught them a lesson. So they sign imperialist treaties with the following countries now: Sweden and Norway in 1847. Prussia and Portugal in 1862, Denmark and Holland in 1863, Belgium in 1865, Italy 1866, Austria Hungary. Italy, Italy just became a country. Yeah, and they got the they got themselves an unequal treaty. Uh, Austria Hungary 1869, Japan fateful in 1871, uh, Peru 18 Peru 1874 Peru. Peru. Wow. Um, and then everybody gets this most favored nation clause stuck in there so whatever anybody negotiates everybody gets um in 1861 the u.s civil war breaks out you may remember listeners the u.s civil war from such previous episodes (laughs) um and so there's a whole global thing that that um britain is doing here so um the U.S. and China are the major markets for British manufacturing and major suppliers of raw materials. So when both the Taiping and U.S. Civil War are going on, the British respond basically by really squeezing India. Uh, so they've got to get everything from India. Um, and there's an interesting debate uh, in Britain, uh, you know, among the imperialists about what to do about these wars. So British want to stay neutral. They ultimately come down with trying to stay neutral um, in the U.S. Civil War, giving the U.S. South belligerent status uh, and not staying neutral um, in the Chinese Civil War, but basically joining to tilt the war on the side of the Manchus on the regime. Yeah, we'll get into the reasons for that in the next episode. Yeah. So Elgin becomes Viceroy of India and dies in 1863. Uh, the Shanfeng Emperor dies at age 30. Queen Victoria is sent a lapdog by the Emperor, a Pekingese breed. She names the dog Lutie. No. Oh, yeah. Lutie. Lutie the dog. Um, and uh, just uh, <laughs> we can conclude on the following note. Because <laughs> in 1960... Uh, a decade after the revolution, a hundred years after this war, uh, Mao Zedong uh, announces that opium addiction is ended in China. And I'll, I'll leave you with this quote, Dave, from Haynes and Sinello. Ironically, Mao was essentially enforcing the policy and plan that had first been tried by Commissioner Lin Zixu and his master, the Daoguang Emperor, the plan that had precipitated the first opium war. The great helmsman just said no. Hmm. 
All right, so uh, that concludes our Opium Wars. And up next, we have uh, Taiping Rebellion Part 2. We'll conclude the Taiping Rebellion.